Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. (laughs) Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio and it's the morning after the night before that Boris Johnson cemented his place as the next Prime Minister of this fine country. I don't think there is any doubt about that whatsoever. Last night in this very building, Boris went head to head for the last time in a debate with Jeremy Hunt and while it was a lot more good natured than the last one on ITV, it wasn't to everyone's taste, particularly if you're a Jeremy Corbyn fan because both Hunt and Boris Johnson declared that they thought the leader of the Labour Party is personally anti-Semitic. Surely, now now Jeremy Corbyn must take some kind of action to defend himself from these accusations. Otherwise, what are we all supposed to think? We'll find out in the next three hours. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up later on, we will also be tackling the latest nonsense from the climate change crazies, this time in the form of a report from a load of do-gooder charity workers from the, wait for it, Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and the commerce. These occupiers of the moral high ground believe the farming and food systems of this country must change to avoid a catastrophe. For goodness sake, of course, business as usual is, in their words, not an option. More good news for the Extinction Rebellion planks who are still, as far as I know, occupying five of our major cities in this country with boats which have been left by the police to just sit there and block roads, block uh, traffic ways, block pavements, block whatever they like and cause all kinds of mayhem and congestion and, of course, pollution. 0344 499 1000. Also later on, we'll be sympathising with poor old Kate Winslet, who's been in tears at the discovery that her ancestors were dirt poor and lived like slaves. Apparently, she's worth 62 million now, but she once said uh, that if anyone in her history or anyone in her family was proven to be rich, she would be very, very upset indeed. She says money hasn't changed her and her family are very, very humble indeed. Of course they are. We'll bring you all this plus loads of your calls this morning on the most common sense show on the radio. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, as many of you will know, uh, we held in this very building, the News UK building last night, sponsored by The Sun and Talk Radio, the final debate between Jeremy Hunt and, of course, Boris Johnson. Much more good-natured than the one they did on ITV. Jeremy Hunt came across much better. Uh, Boris and he seemed to be joshing around most of the time. Both offered each other uh, jobs in their uh, respective cabinets, if in fact it came down to that. But there was no doubt who the star of the show was, because whenever Boris came off the stage, there was crowds of people wanting to have pictures taken with him, the people who wanted to touch him, people wanted to meet him, people wanted to treat him like the rock star politician that he apparently is. Jeremy Hunt, 
not so much. Never mind. Uh, but the key moment for me, we've talked about immigration, we've talked about their policy on Brexit, we've talked about a great many things, but the key moment for me, which we haven't really delved very deeply into yet here on Talk Radio, was when the two men who want to be Prime Minister of this country were asked a question about Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, a man who has been accused of running an anti-Semitic political party, right? A man who has had been the subject of a panorama investigation just a week or so ago. And this is how it went. Uh, Mr Hunt, is Jeremy Corbyn personally anti-Semitic? <laughs> Unfortunately, he may be. Mr. Johnson? I think by condoning yeah. anti-Semitism the way he does, I'm afraid he's effectively culpable of that vice, yes. So, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt both saying that they believe Jeremy Corbyn is personally anti-Semitic. Now, surely, it seems to me, if you are the leader of the opposition, if you are a politician who values the way that you are held in esteem by the public and by the voting uh, people in general, then you should be launching some kind of legal suit against this, shouldn't you? Let's talk to John McTiernan, uh, who is Tony Blair's former political secretary, of course. John, uh, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Uh, good morning. So, um, you and I spoke uh, before the Panorama documentary went out, which has since gone out and, and been kind of roundly criticised by those at the top of the Labour Party, saying that it's politically biased and saying that it was unfair, making allegations which are unfounded. We've now got, effectively, whichever way you look at it, the next Prime Minister of this country calling um, Jeremy Corbyn personally anti-Semitic. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's the most extraordinary situation. And as you said, uh, if Jeremy wanted to defend his reputation, he has very simple legal routes to do that. And one has noticed uh, that despite repeated uh, accusations of this sort, um, he's done nothing, presumably because he doesn't want to see the accusation tested in court. Um, he simply stands behind the statement that he always makes, which is that uh, he's a lifelong anti-racist. Well, I think uh, you, you and your listeners would agree, uh, given the company he keeps, he must be the unluckiest anti-racist <laughs> campaigner in history. Well, unlucky, I think, is being a very, very generous, John, and I appreciate, <laughs> your, uh, I appreciate your attempts to do so. We have actually contacted Jeremy Corbyn's office and asked if he would come on to defend these allegations. We have asked them to put up anyone that they would like who could also defend him, instead of which uh, they have sent us a, a statement, right, uh, which includes some uh, language which other people listening to this show may find slightly offensive. Um, but let's have a listen to what Labour says about these allegations. Jeremy Corbyn is implacably opposed to anti-Semitism in all its forms and has campaigned against it throughout his life. This baseless political attack comes from a politician whose Islamophobic comments were directly linked to hate crimes targeted at Muslim women, approved an article that claimed black people have lower IQs, and tonight refused to apologise for describing gay men as tank-topped bumboys. So that's what the Labour Party has to say. That's what I would call deflection, I think, John, in your business, isn't it? Yeah, it is um, uh, changing the subject. Yeah. Uh, and there's, I mean, you, just look at yesterday, the Parliamentary Labour Party, the MPs and the, uh, and the peers and House Lords, Labour peers and House Lords, they all wanted to discuss uh, the way the party handled anti-Semitism, particularly in the light of the Panorama programme. And Jeremy Corbyn uh, decided he wasn't available. Not available to go to the Parliamentary Party, not available to speak to the, the, the MPs and uh, the peers, not available to 
to defend his uh, himself, his reputation, defend his handling uh, and leadership of the Labour Party. Um, there's a strong streak, not just of deflection, but of cowardice running through uh, the way that uh, Jeremy Corbyn's handling this issue. No, right. And last night from that meeting, it was re it was reported that John Cryer, who's the chairman of the Parliamentary Labour Party, told Labour MPs that um, the spokespeople attacking Labour staff on Panorama was a gross misjudgment. The bottom line is we've got racists in our party and they are not being dealt with. I mean, all I can do is agree with that. I'm, I was one of more than 200 uh, current and former party staff who wrote an open letter to, uh, to, to Jeremy Corbyn about the issue of anti-Semitism, the handling uh, of anti-Semitism in the party, and the response uh, to the Panorama report, which was truly shocking that uh, idealistic, hard-working young people who have previously been uh, members of the Labour Party staff uh, who spoke to Panorama... Uh, who are whistleblowers who are trying to do the right thing for the party were just attacked. It was just a brutal attack on, you know, on attacking, as Emily Thornbury said, attacking the messenger um, and not listening to the message. And this is no, this is no way to handle what was a terrible situation. I think, um, you know, you listeners may not realise that the, the EHRC, the Equalities Body, who are investigating the Labour Party. Uh, uh, because they they are concerned that Labour may be institutionally anti-Semitic. They've only ever investigated one other political party uh, in their history, and that political party is the BNP. So Jeremy Corbyn has managed to get the Labour Party, the British Labour Party, bracketed with the BNP uh, in the same category in the eyes of our uh, most senior mm. qualities watchdog. And I think the last time you and I spoke, John, I think my question to you was, is Jeremy Corbyn killing the Labour Party? Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that now, um, but he doesn't seem to care, and neither does the Labour Party. Well, he's... I mean, there was... Initially, when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of the Labour Party, I thought his only intention was to drive people like myself and Tony Blair out of the Labour Party to make it a rump far-left party. Then I think he... He enjoyed the 2017 during election. He gave Theresa May a scare. He came closer than anybody imagined he, he might come to uh, to Downing Street. And I think for a bit, for for a moment there, he actually thought that'd be an interesting prospect. Me being in power, you know, Corbyn government, McDonald government, uh, and I think he's gone off that again. He's back to his core project, which is he doesn't care what damage is done to the Labour Party's image, uh, the Labour Party's. Um, the way it's seen by, by, by the general public, by the voters, as long as he is in charge, as long as he's in total control. And he's, you know, his, he and his supporters have started on a process just last week of trying to drive out as many, many of the decent centrist Labour MPs as they can. Um, they would rather lose seats than have people who they disagree with as MPs. Mm. We'll be seeing, we'll be, we're seeing the narrowing uh, of the Labour Party's appeal. And yes, you, you, we may be close to the shattering of the Labour Party, either by a split or just a shattering by the voters turning their back on a Labour Party, which, um, how can people vote for an anti-Semitic party, an institutional anti-Semitic yeah. party? Well, there are so many. Refuses to, to defend itself. Right. Well, that's the like thing that. that I find staggering. And, in, and also their statement, which we've just heard, um, attacks Boris Johnson for saying what he said about Jeremy Corbyn, but doesn't mention Jeremy Hunt, because you cannot describe Jeremy Hunt as a politician uh, who made Islamophobic comments directed at uh, and targeted Muslim women, you know, he, that, because because Jeremy Hunt is not that man. So what, they've deliberately not mentioned him. Does this mean, do you think, that they would rather have Boris as Prime Minister because he's a better foe for them and their kind of lefty maniacs? 
Yes, I think they. I think they're under the misguided uh, assumption that uh, that Boris is an easier person to beat than Jeremy Hunt. Um, if I was Boris Johnson and I became Prime Minister, the first thing I would do is challenge Jeremy Corbyn to a debate in every single working men's club, the length and breadth of the country. And I tell you, working class voters would not be at the end of the debate supporting Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, one of Corbyn's problems is he's 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 going to throw the entire working class labour base uh, of the party to the um, to the Conservatives. Boris has got far greater appeal to to many traditional labour voters than the Labour Party leadership already concede. Mm. And if you if you won't give if you won't give due credit to the political strengths of your opponents, you'll never have a chance of beating them. And what is Corbyn's sort of, you know, historical background with the law? Does he like going after people? Because I know there are plenty of people on the far left who are quite happy uh, to engage uh, lawyers when they wish to. And of course, famously before the Panorama broadcast, uh, we had Carter Ruck being hired by the Labour Party yeah. rather ludicrously. And I think you were the one that branded that ridiculous. Um, where they paid loads and loads of money out to these yeah. lawyers uh, to, to essentially try and stop the tide from overwhelming them. Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, um, I don't think uh, Jeremy Corbyn's in the uh, George Galloway class to take legal legal action against against people. Um, but then I don't think that um, Jeremy Corbyn's got the the wit or the brains or the eloquence of of George Galloway, who is the uh, the closest we have to a kind of left populist uh, leader in British politics. But is excluded from the Labour Party, not for his views, I suspect. Uh, which are pretty well in line with Jeremy Corbyn's, uh, but because Jeremy fears that a charismatic uh, left-wing leader like uh, George Galloway might be seen as a, big, a much bigger threat mm. than any of the other people in the parliamentary party. Yeah, interesting that, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, presumably, uh, this can't carry on forever. And I've said this to you before, John, you know, yeah. there must be a sort of a tipping point at some stage, whether it's a tipping point for the Labour Party to split into the formerly more centrist sort of Blairite uh, party that you will pass yeah. for such so much of a big part of, and government as well, mm. um, and, and the sort of left-wing fringe. Yeah, no, no, it does. It feels like it can't, it can't go on forever, but... It, but um, we haven't uh, reached that point yet, I guess. No, it, it seems to me that there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of. It's, it, was, uh, it was David Hume, I think, who said there's a lot of ruin in the country. It turns out there's a lot of ruin in the party. It can take a very long time to wreck yeah. a great historic party and a great historic uh, political brand. Um, and you know, with grim determination, Jeremy Corbyn devotes every single day to uh, that task of, of bringing the Labour Party to its knees. And sadly, mm. he's well on his way. You must be quite sad about it personally, John, because, you know, whatever anybody says, and I know that Tony Blair is not the most popular man in the world, wrongly in my view, because I think he did an awful lot more for this country yeah. than he's given credit for. Um, yeah. And he brought this country very much, for me, into the sort of modern digital age. And, and while yeah. everyone remembers Iraq and he gets attacked from all sides, you know, he managed to get himself and the Labour Party elected and, and stayed in power for a long time. Yeah, no, look, the... Tony Blair is almost certainly, uh, he, he is historically the most successful Labour Party leader ever, three elections in a row, and it's likely he'll be the most successful Labour Party leader ever. And it's a tragedy for the country uh, that a man who did so much good to the country domestically in terms of you know, uh, reviving the NHS, in terms of uh, renovating our schools, our education system, all kinds of achievements that, uh, that, that, that both his reputation as damaged, look, that happens in politics, but that um, the, the, the notion of an electable Labour Party, which is really his task from the early 80s onwards to make the Labour Party electable, that seems to be no longer 
the aspiration of the party leadership, uh, the people around Jeremy Corbyn, the people at the top of the Labour Party in Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn himself. And it is a, it's a matter of deep sadness, having myself well, worked all the way through the 80s to clean up the Labour Party, to get rid of the militant, to get rid of the extremists mm. who wanted to take the Labour Party off the far left, to see them back, some of the same people back uh, in charge and um, trying to drive us out. But, you know, in the end, politics is uh, not just about ideals, it's about struggle. And uh, I'm going to stay as long as there's a chance to fight to win back the Labour Party. And it's not just the Labour Party that Jeremy Corbyn is trying. No. So, so there's, no, reputation. there's no point at which you would say, perhaps with others of your uh, of similar leanings, to say, you know what, it's time we had some kind of social democratic party set up, some kind of non-left-wing Labour-supporting organisation that could actually split the movement. It's, I mean, it feels like it's seven seconds to midnight, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but it's still not midnight. Okay. And what about, generally speaking, I don't know if you saw the debate last night, but, you know, a Boris Johnson prime ministership looks now more and more likely. Yeah. I can't really imagine anything else happening. How do you see the next few months unfolding? Well, it depends how I mean, it depends uh, how Boris plays it. I mean, he if you take him at his word and take Jeremy Hunt at his word last night, we're heading for um, the genuine process of no deal, um, no deal Brexit. I think that would be hugely damaging for the country. I think it would be hugely damaging for the Tory Party, um, and I think they would probably find it as difficult to recover from in the long run as Black Friday was for them uh, in the 1990s. But uh, there is uh, a view, and that which I sh which I hold, which is that you know just as Nixon was the only uh, only showed that only a Republican could go to communist China uh, and make an opening between America and China, so maybe Boris is the only one who can go to Europe and actually do a deal with Europe, which he can take back and sell to the ERG and the DUP, telling them that you know they have to trust him that he is a Brexiteer, he's always been a Brexiteer, he's never changed his mind on this. Um, and that they will, they should compromise to falling behind him and vote for whatever slight marginal changes he can get to the Theresa May deal on the basis that leaving at least delivers the certainty of the Brexit which the DUP and the ERG say they want. Um, and that any, any alternative to, um, to, to leaving is either, you know, revoking Article 50, which which the rights of the Tory party don't want, it's another referendum, the rights of the Tory party don't want, or it's a general election which nobody in the Tory party wants. So there's a slim pathway, a narrow pathway that he can walk down where he gets slight movement from the European Union uh, and he can deliver the right ERG in his party and the DUP on the basis that they should be able to trust him and they should be able to trust him in a way uh, that Theresa May wasn't being able to be trusted by the ERG and the DUP. She was just, in the end, she was too weak to be believable. Um, of all the things that Boris can be accused of, he won't be accused of being weak. He'll have a strong mandate from the party membership. Uh, the question is, can he broker it quickly enough uh, into a package for exit, which is okay for the European Union, okay for Ireland, uh, and okay for... Uh, 
people who need to support him in the Commons. Yes, quite. John, thanks very much for doing for your time. John McTurnan, uh, Tony Blair's former uh, political secretary, former advisor to Tony Blair, quite rightly saying that Tony Blair was and will be and still is the most successful Labour Party Prime Minister uh, in modern times because he was elected three times. He did push through a massive programme of social change. You might not like what he did uh, about Iraq, but, you know, there are lots of good reasons to like Tony Blair and lots of bad reasons uh, to dislike Jeremy Corbyn. And if you talk about what Jeremy Corbyn stands for and if you hear what Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt said last night about him personally being anti-Semitic, surely, to heavens, the Labour Party have to do better than simply issuing a statement saying... Jeremy Corbyn is implacably opposed to anti-Semitism in all its forms and has campaigned against it throughout his life. Well, really? Well, I think it's time has come, Jeremy, for you to actually uh, fish or cut bait, as they say, and it's no longer good enough just to deny these allegations. If the Prime Minister of this country thinks the Leader of the Opposition is anti-Semitic in a personal capacity, surely... You need to do more than just deny it, don't you? 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll hear from some of the other things that were said at the debate last night, including uh, the fact that uh, there's going to be a new Australian-style point system for immigration. Want to hear what you have to say about that. And the fact that, as John McTernan just said there, it looks very much as though Boris Johnson is gearing up for a no-deal Brexit, which I know many of you listening to this show now will be rejoicing about. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this kind of pressure group stroke charity that we're talking about. These are uh, people who work for an organisation which claims to be a charity, but I'm terribly sorry to tell you, does not to me look like a charity. These are people uh, who involve uh, the employment of around about 97 people. If you look at their website, uh, the RSA, the Royal Society of uh, All Manner of Different Things, which wants us to change the way that we do everything, right? These are people um, who, quite frankly, are polemicists. They are politically motivated. They supposedly operate as a charity, but they actually live very high on the hog because they employ so many people. You would not be surprised to learn that one of the things that they want to do is to change society's views, to change the way that we live, to change the way uh, that we operate in general life. And what their story today says is that basically we are risking a catastrophic climate emergency situation if we do not change the way that we produce fruit, the way that we produce vegetables, and if we do not produce some kind of national nature service for young people. Let's talk to Sarah Lee, who's uh, head of policy at the Countryside Alliance, to find out what she knows about the RSA, the Royal Society, for the encouragement of arts, manufacturers and commerce and whether they are, in fact, enriching society. Sarah, very good morning to you. Morning. I'm a bit puzzled whenever I come across organisations like this because inevitably I've never heard of them before, right? Um, and I, as I sort of explore what it is that they do, I'm often left kind of open-mouthed with, with, with shock because there's so many of them. They're taking an awful lot of money out of the system and all they want to do is tell us how to change our lives. <laughs> well, yes, there, there, there is a, a, a situation like that. But they have raised um, some important issues through their report about the future of our farming in our countryside. And while, you know, it has raised, raised important issues, um, and there's some bold ideas, and it's, it's providing a key opportunity for discussion of the future role farming agriculture and play, we do have to remember that they are, they, you know, they have a, do have an agenda on what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, well they do. They've got a very nice sounding name, which is all very sort of lovey and dovey and kind of furry and, and, and cosy. But they're actually saying this, this is their quote, if we don't make the changes we need to right now, we will go beyond 1.5 degrees, beyond 2 degrees, we'll probably go beyond 4 degrees of global warming, which will have an absolutely catastrophic effect on the whole of the country. Now, there's absolutely no evidence to back that up at all, is there? Um, not, well, 
obviously our climate is changing and the role that farming can um, can have a positive change and our rural communities can thrive as a powerhouse for a green economy. But we need to take this in context and need to work with our farmers rather than having these top-down diktats telling them that everything they're doing is wrong. Mm. Our farmers are already producing um, high welfare, high standards, environmental standards, and we need to work with these farmers and show them as a beacon rather than telling them they're doing everything, they're, what they're doing is wrong. Yeah, I mean, what is it that they want to change about the way that farming is carried out in this country? They're asking for meat and dairy to come from their, in their words, sustainable livestock. What does that even mean? <laughs> they're looking at issues such as um, doing agroforestry. So that's where um, we, rather than just having fields of wheat or fields of cows or a bit of woodland, that you merge the woodland with the cows. So it's a much more environmentally friendly way of farming. And yes, that will work in some areas and that will work for some people. But, you know, we've got to do the, make these changes in conjunction with farmers rather than yeah. telling them what to do. You know, at the end so of the day, that, these that, guys... So does that suggest that cows wander about in sort of copses and in, in forests rather than in yeah. fields? Absolutely. You know, for some people, that's probably more aesthetically pleasing. But, it, you know, it's not going to work everywhere across the country. And we, we need to, you know, have local solutions for local problems. Yeah, quite. Because you can't suddenly just find um, spaces for a herd of cows, which happen to include lots and lots of trees, can you? Of course not. You know, trees don't grow overnight. This is it's, it's going to be a long-term strategy and a long-term plan. And this is why they need to talk to farmers and work with farmers, work with the National Farmers Union, work with the guys like the CLA, and talk about what this means in reality and how long this takes to change. Right, because they also talk a lot about cheap food and keeping food yeah. prices down. And presumably, whatever you may uh, feel about the, the sustainability factor or the greenness of a farming opportunity, <laughs> you know, the, the, the more complicated you make it, the more expensive the food gets. Of course, of course, you know, the, um, the balance with sustainability affordability is one of the biggest challenges facing the industry. You know, we have a, a society and consumers who have an ever-growing demand for cheap food, and this is where we need to put the, 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 the onus back onto consumers. The UK has the third cheapest basket of food in the developed world, and if we continue to promote and support our farmers who are already producing high food, food to high environmental and animal welfare standards, then consumers also need to play their part, except we need to pay more for our food. Yeah. One of their other uh, points is that, of course, uh, and we've known this for a while, but environmentalists don't often say it, that farming does contribute uh, to greenhouse gases by a factor of something like 10% of the total, which is quite high when you think about it. They're saying they're advocating grassland farming uh, where climate-friendly beef and lamb are produced. Now, I don't know what that means either. How, does, how do they do that? Um, it's coming back to what we were talking about earlier about, about a, bit, a bit more of the kind of agroforestry farming. You know, um, you've got organisations already talking about um, uh, this kind of grassland farming and, the, you know, being net zero by 2040. So, you know, we're already on our way to the, in that direction. They're not telling us anything new. No, they're not. But when you look at these organisations, it must you might make you tear your hair out, Sarah. I mean, you represent the Countryside Alliance, which is by and large, as far as I'm concerned, a relatively sensible, serious lobbying group. And you kind of do what you say on the tin. You know, you don't pretend to be something that you're not. But an awful lot of these people, I mean, if I just tell you, looking, looking through the, you know, who we are section of their website, right, they're actually a research centre, has five people in it. Uh, their public services and community section has eight people in it. Creative learning and development. Development uh, has more people than I can count, actually, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine to 12 people. They've got economy, enterprise and manufacturing. They've got another eight people working there. They've got a total bill, right, in terms of salaries on an annual basis of close to four million quid. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry, that does not constitute to me a charitable organisation. That's money we can only dream of here at the country. Well, exactly. I mean, what's your, I bet your budget is nowhere near that. 
<laughs> no, not at all. I might, might, might move jobs. Um, <laughs> but no, you know, back to the point, though. The point is, you know, if, you, if these organisations are going to put out reports, then they need to really work much more closely with those who are managing the land and those communities who, who are living and working there. It's no good, you know, London-based centric organisations just dictating how the, what they, their vision of the countryside. You know, get out there, meet these guys, find out what actually is going on out there. There's right. some great um, innovation. Our farmers are entrepreneurial. They're, do, you know, they're producing some food to the highest standards in the world. Go and learn from them. Yes. I would think one of the major problems that the farming industry faces in this country is the sort of supermarketization of Britain in as much as, you know, we've heard before from dairy farmers who get squeezed on an annual basis by the big supermarkets because they only pay a certain amount of money for their milk and for their cheese and they find themselves just having to go along with it because the sheer volume that these big companies demand means that they haven't really got an argument. Absolutely. You know, it, 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 it is, you know, we go back to the... Um, grocery adjudicator, you know, very much saying that a lot of our farmers are in the stronghold of supermarkets. We need to make this a much more fair and balanced relationship. Yes, exactly right. And as far as the whole kind of uh, climate change scenario goes, I mean, you know, in terms of being serious and being kind of, um, you know, as, as true to the, the rules of the game we can be, you know, we see Extinction Rebellion growing with every single, you know, school holiday that comes along. There seems to be more of them bringing boats into the middle of towns, you know, being really hypocritical about the way that energy is, is being generated, being really hypocritical about everything. Are you not worried that we're kind of going down some mad path here where we're being led by um, sort of, you know, what I would regard as extremists on the climate front and politicians are kind of recognising it and doing things with them? I think we've got to work with people, and I've got to, you know, where, where there are genuine concerns, we've got, we've got to tackle them. But the point is, I think a lot of this is generated on social media, and it comes back to a larger point about talking about politics and social media and uh, politicians bowing down to that kind of um, echo chamber. You know, we know when we talk about, go out there and we talk to people about environmental issues, when we go and talk to people about rural issues, it's a very different view and opinion to what those guys on social media are saying. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Well, Sarah, listen, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Sarah Lee, head of policy at the Countryside Alliance. You'd have to say, would you not, that this organisation, the RSA, uh, which talk, calls itself 21st Century Enlightenment, enriching society through ideas and action. Well, really? I don't think so. And if you're meant to be a charity, why on earth do you employ 97 people? Why have you got a staff bill of 3.7 billion quid, million quid every single year? And what on earth is the point of you? And why have I never heard of you before? Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So, uh, Matthew Wright comes up at one o'clock. We've got loads of you who want to get on the phone. Uh, we can, of course, take loads of those calls. We can uh, take your tweets as well at Talk Radio, uh, and you can text us as well. Text your, uh, your message to 87222. Start it with the word talk. Let's head off, first of all, down to Epsom. Talk to Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Mike. Just before I make a comment on immigration, yeah. the reason we've never been back to the moon is because there were I've aliens... I've seen your tweet. I've just, I've just put a, a mark on the top of it saying steady with a picture of an alien. You're not going to tell me yeah. they really found aliens. If you go on YouTube, Buzz Aldrin admits that a bell-shaped Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Buzz Aldrin, by everybody's account, sort of had a bit of an episode when he came back. I mean, he was not a well man. Have you seen the video of him punching a guy? I haven't. I have seen that. But the reason is is because he admits that a bell-shaped craft followed them to the moon. No. No, the reason he punches the guy is because the guy comes up and is one of these kind of deniers of the moon thing happening. He accuses it of all being a fake. So Buzz Aldrin punches him. I have seen that, but I just, I don't know, there's a little bit something fishy there. But the, the reason I'm calling is your, your praise of Blair earlier, I almost uh, crashed the car. Because <laughs> in, my, in, my, in my opinion, Blair was, Blair was the worst Prime Minister we've ever had. I actually think as well that he left us with one, not, not only £1.6 trillion worth of debt, but it was the deficit that he left us with. It was the fact that UK PLC was, was earning much less than it took to, to run. And that's been the real problem for the the Conservative Party, and also the fact that he opened the floodgates intentionally, he socially engineered his country, he allowed mass immigration from outside the EU, and he purposely didn't cap new EU member states. He famously wanted to rub the noses of the right in diversity. I, and that, I, I interviewed Phil Willis once, and he admitted that's what they did. So the, the truth is, he created Brexit because... But Nigel Farage's biggest ever boost... Yeah, but do you know what you sound like, Daniel? You sound like one of those crazy left-wing people that blames Margaret Thatcher for everything. You know, it's all her fault. You're now blaming Tony Blair for everything. It's not all his fault. And he was actually... The reason I say he was a great Prime Minister is because if you remember what life was like in the 1990s, and the same way that you might not remember what life was like in the 1970s before Margaret Thatcher came in... Blair came in and transformed this country, and I think he doesn't get credit for it. It's as simple as that. I'm not in favour of what happened in Iraq. However, as he always says, the world changed after 9-11. And when those decisions which were taken, as it turns out, wrongly to go into Iraq, they were taken by countries who were dead scared of what had just happened and thought it might happen again. Luckily for us, it hasn't. Yeah, but what happened, what you're missing is, is when, when Blair came in, before, uh, basically our economy was growing uh, at the fastest rate in, in the world at the time. And he, he took over at the right time when the economy was doing really well. Yeah, we can't blame him for that, can you? No, no, but what did he do over the 13 years? I mean, he, I think he's... He modernised the country for a start. Yeah, he improved it, it, the healthcare system of this country. Yeah, you might complain yeah. that he did it through uh, private finance initiatives, but he still, imp- he still made it better, right? Yeah, but after, there but were but lots after, of things that improved in this country. 
yeah, that's true. But after 13 years, what did we see? What were we left with? We were left with our towns and cities unrecognisable for immigration. We were that's left not with... true. That is rubbish, I mean, Daniel. I'm, I'm from Croydon and I saw it with my own eyes, Mike. You well, Croydon can... is Croydon, you know. Croydon has been unrecognisable to a lot of people for a long time. Lots of people well, don't I, like I Croydon. Ask people to rig in. What I mean, about I, Epsom? I, How's Epsom? That's where you're yeah. coming from now. Yeah, it's, I'm, I moved here to get out of there. And right, so, I, so when you say the towns well, and cities of this country, you mean some towns and cities? No, I'm saying the towns and cities that we grew up in, and my family were from London. We've been moving out for a long my time. My family from my, London too. And one of the biggest drivers is, is it was immigration. Ask people to ring in and tell you, they'll tell you. Yeah, I, I can find plenty of people to ring in and tell me anything I like, Daniel. I'm just disagreeing with you. You can make a case for Tony Blair being a terrible Prime Minister if you want, and you can have that view. And I would not tell you that you can't have it. I just differ from you, because I think the good things that he brought to this country are more important than the bad things. And I know it's an unpopular position, but sometimes I take those positions up. And I'm sorry if you don't like it. Daniel, thank you very much for your call. Let's talk to Alan, who's in County Durham. Hello, Alan. Hi, Mike. I'd just like to say it's a refreshing change to debate the other side of the argument regarding climate change. Isn't it just? It is. You really surprised me when I heard it, because everybody else seems to want to tour the line the opposite direction. Yeah, well, I come, I come sometimes to surprise you from all sorts of different directions. I think I've just, <laughs> surprised, I've just surprised Daniel by supporting Tony Blair. But there you are. What can you say? Yeah, well, I was just going to say about... Um, I was mainly about population. It's not really debate of the population. You always say about cutting back on airfares and cars. Right. And they, they always find a way... Uh, probably getting tax from you to to do this, but uh, the population boom—it's it, just going to go on and on. It, you know, when if there's too many badgers, they cull them. If there's too many seals, they cull them. I'm not saying you can you can cull people. Thank, for heaven's but, sake, let's that, <laughs> let's not go down that road. But here's the thing, but, but, Alan. But what I find but, extraordinary, right, is that we in Britain are told that we alone have to start this revolution, that we have to lead the world, when the rest of the world doesn't care. That's right, but they don't want to offer it. The people who are trying to uh, lead this in this country, they don't have an alternative solution. Even those extinction, extinction rebellion people, yeah. they probably all have cars, go on holidays, have fridges. and. Well, it's, you know, it's, no, it's no really coincidence, care. Alan, that every time we, the private schools break up, suddenly the Extinction Rebellion mob decides to invade another city because the schools have, 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 have got some holidays coming. But they'll all be flying off. I mean, we just saw uh, a tweet earlier today of the, uh, the woman who's deputy leader of the Green Party driving around in, in an old Volkswagen van, which must be one yeah. of the most polluting vehicles the world's ever seen. Yeah, I must admit, I don't have a, a resolution regarding the, the population boom, but uh, th there are some some uh, particular races that are actually uh, uh, even getting more and more population. They just well, want, uh, I mean, well, if you look at the, the, the size of India, uh, its population has almost doubled. If you look at the size of China, its population has now gone up to close to 2 billion, I think. You know, these are countries which dwarf not only our population, but our, our carbon footprint as well. Yeah, so if we, get, if we carry on populating, everyone wants a house, they want a car, they want a road to drive down, where does it stop? You, well, you've, you've got a limit. We've only got one size planet. You can't extend the planet. That's true. There's lots of parts yeah. of the planet where there's plenty of space, though, and thank you very much for your call. Uh, let's go to Paul, who's in Staffordshire. Hello, Paul. Hello, Mike. How you doing? It's nice to talk to you. Very, very nice to talk to you. I love listening to you on the radio, to oh, be honest. Well, I'm, well, I'm well, on the same. Welcome. Thinking, really. Uh, basically, the reason I found in, uh, I was surprised what RCA is saying and the country li uh, country um, countryside alliance, alliance. Yeah. right? Yeah, uh, basically about uh, cattle feeding in forests and that. Cattle and animals don't feed mainly in forests no. because uh, there's nothing really gross for them to eat. Where, where I live is Canic Chase. They go into the meadows. They go into the heather. 
to feed. They use the woods for protection or to keep out the sun. Right. It's, it's not going to work. Well, that's Too the thing. I mean, there's a reason... There's, but also, there's a reason why <laughs> farming is done in the way that it, it, that yeah. it is. The reason that cows yeah. are in fields with grass in is because yeah. that's what they eat, right? Yeah, they don't do any uh, observation or study. They just say things. I mean, uh, Argentina, I mean, they had to cut a, a lot of forest down for the, for the um, cattle to feed, you right. know. They just don't live to feed in woods, you know. I mean, it's a good idea to have some trees in the, in the field for cover, for shade and that, but it, it won't work. No. Just, well, this is the thing. I just don't I mean, understand the logic. The thing you know? that I find astonishing, Paul, and, and the lady from the Countryside Alliance said it as well, that these organisations like the yeah. RSA, they're based in London, you know, they all sit around, yeah. you know, drinking skinny lattes and deciding what's good for the rest That's of it. the world. But they don't yeah. actually have yeah. any practical experience. They employ 97 right. people, this lot, right? They have a, yeah. a, an annual yeah. wage bill of close to 4 million yeah. quid. That's not charity. Yeah. No, it isn't. And they just don't do any research. They just say things. It's just like, uh, you know, oh, let's have uh, you, you, uh, pandas running everywhere. They're so beautiful. You know, it's giving you an illusion of a life that won't happen. You know, it's, yeah. they, uh, it's hard to explain, really. But it, it's, uh, uh, I don't know, they just, um, there's no logical thinking. There isn't. They don't study. They don't observe. They don't see what the impact is. It's just, they just say things. Mm. Yeah, because they, they think, think it sounds because they think, think it sounds it's good. It's like this virtue signalling society that we now live in. Paul, listen, thanks very much indeed for your call. Let's talk to John, uh, who's up in Scotland. Hello, John. How you doing, mate? Yeah, very well, sir. How's it going? No bad, no bad. I'm just listening to you know, the news here, and I was telling me Donald Trump's racist for telling this. I'm an Omar, whatever her name is, to get back to whatever country she came from. Right. Well, I'm just looking at her. She's came to America. She's been brought in. She's never had a job. She runs for Congress. She becomes Congress, and she's telling everybody else how to live her life. Yeah. She's never never had a proper job in her life. Never helped anybody. Came American taxpayers' money. Now living on taxpayers' money. Constantly criticising American people and constantly criticising Israel. Yeah. Well, this this squad, this squad of four people, right, who seem to think of themselves as completely different. I lived in America for ten, nearly 10 years. It was never like that when I was there. I don't know where these people have come from in terms of the amount of kind of left-wing um, uh, BS that they're kind of spouting, because I America think, doesn't support any of that. I just think the left have realised that they call people racist to get power. Yeah, That's well, maybe, I'm, maybe, I'm but in a way, in a way, don't you think they're sort of playing into Donald Trump's hands? Because he's saying these are people who supported ISIS in the past yeah. and Al Qaeda, and whether he's yeah. right or not, his supporters will believe him. Well, you're, you're totally right there, and I think he's breaking the conditioning of people thinking the country's bad all the time. You can point out other things in every country that's bad, mate. You know, but when I mean, you just shout racism and. That you're just shutting an argument, right? Mate. And also, this, the, the place in America that there's, there's people constantly calling for him to be impeached, for him to be arrested, for him to be thrown out of office. And the trouble is, they can't do it. So, this is, okay. I mean, this is going to again play into his hands. He's going to get help. another four years. I think it'll help him give him another four years. Yeah, I agree. I do. John, I think you're absolutely right. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you very much. John in Scotland there. Uh, by the way, bad news for the old uh, SNP up in Scotland who've been now running Scotland for some time, telling us how well they run the country. Uh, they've just had the biggest number of drug deaths I think has ever happened in Scotland. Uh, we can talk about that as well. Maybe we'll talk about that tomorrow. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. Lots more of you want to talk to me. Lots more of you can talk to me. We've got loads and loads of great tweets as well. Uh, here's one from Anthony. Corbyn's Labour talking about to the story we talked about in the first hour of the
the show, is now moving along the politically equivalent path of the Reverend Jim Jones. Extreme beliefs, groupthink, paranoid conspiracy beliefs, isolation and eventual destruction when lies are exposed and reality intervenes. The only question is how far Labour follow the Reverend Corbyn. Uh, Andy says, no one in the media seems to have picked this up. Uh, Trump told some senators to go back to their home countries. This is followed by outrage. The Dalai Lama said exactly the same thing a couple of weeks ago and we don't hear a peep from the progressives. Uh, and here's one from Yepal uh, talking about the uh, little voyage of discovery that's being made by the deputy leader of the Green Party in a Volkswagen van. Uh, this is one of the most polluting vehicles you can still buy. Demonstrates both her ignorance and her stupidity. Well, I can't argue with that, really. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. God, that's bad, isn't it? One of the worst songs of all time. One of the worst films of all time, but actually very popular, very, very successful. And whenever it comes on, you just watch it, don't you? Titanic, right? Here's a bit of bizarre information for you. There's a guy by the name of Jason Barry uh, who listens to this show, listens to me, listens to this station and has listened to me for many, many years. He's the guy, uh, when they're standing waiting to try and evacuate the ship, says... There are women and children down here. Um, and he's in Titanic, which is my favourite part of this particular piece of, uh, of information that we're about to do. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk to Andre Walker because, of course, the star of Titanic uh, wasn't Leonardo DiCaprio, it was Kate Winslet. And Kate Winslet, uh, who comes from a very nice part of Berkshire, as far as I'm aware, not a million miles away from where Andre Walker now lives, um, has been moaning that she's so glad that when she discovered who her ancestors were, because she did one of these kind of ridiculous... Um, you know, searches into her past because she wanted to do one of those who do you think you are things. She said if she'd found that anybody in her timeline, in her ancestry was rich, she would have been disgusted. Uh, current uh, uh, estimates suggest that Kate Winslet's worth about 62 million quid. Andre, uh, very good afternoon to you. Um, I know you're not yeah. worth that kind of money, but I mean, how ridiculous do these celebrities with money want to be? Well, Mike, of course, the film Titanic was about an upper-class spoiled brat pretending to be working class. That's true. And how amazing, how amazing <laughs> it is that Kate Winslet has been playing to type so much. Look, first of all, both of Kate Winslet's parents went to Oxford. Uh, she grew up in, in Berkshire. I don't know exactly where it is, but look, it's a leafy part. Um, she, is, she is somebody who has made a fortune off the capitalist system and now, of course, goes on about being such a socialist. Now, of course, if she was a genuine socialist, what she would do is give her £62 million away and redistribute it to the working class. Of course, she's not planning to do that. What she's planning instead to do is to slag people off who've been successful in their lives. Yeah, exactly right. Apparently, her great-great-great-great-grandfather was Swedish, Anders Johnson, a stable groom, and apparently he was so poor that he resorted to stealing potatoes and beehives to feed his hungry family. I mean, I, I'm sure this is a true story, but, I mean, it's quite convenient, isn't it, that she's found some ancestor who was so poor that he died of typhoid in prison in 1832. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like times again, the violins out, isn't it? Yeah, and my understanding is I've got a number of uh, celebrity friends who um, who've, who've been on 
or who've been in discussions with who do you think you are. And fairly obviously, what happens is, you know, Mike Graham arrives to have his who do you think you are, and they try and find somebody in the entertainment industry right. or in journalism in order to make the story interesting. Right. In fact, there are some people, of course, where they just go, well, I'm afraid your story's too boring. <laughs> we're, not, we're not willing to put it. Well, in exactly. Fact, exactly. I mean, fact, here's another is. one, right? Here's, here's one. His wife couldn't, this is her quote, right? His wife couldn't even produce milk for their baby because she was starving. And this is my favourite line in the whole interview. I come from a long line of committed breastfeeders. Apparently this is now a thing. <laughs> well, I mean, 65% of the world are lactose intolerant, yeah. so they can't have cow's milk. I mean, uh, look, she, uh, it's pathetic. I, I used to work for Breitbart, the news out, uh, outlet, and Andrew Breitbart always used to say that when he started in Hollywood, it was the people who most benefit from the capitalist system who are its most vehement opponents. But the hypocrisy of Hollywood is unbelievable. I mean, I watched the Oscars when they were all standing up going on about sexual assaults, and I thought, well... It was you that let Harvey Weinstein away with it, not me. Right. You know, I, I and also, these were the I, same people who were on stage thanking him for all of his hard work, despite <laughs> the fact that he'd done horrible right. things. Yeah, so essentially what they're doing is they're telling me that I'm wrong to attempt to earn money. They're telling, they're telling us that all men are rapists and things like that. Yeah. And in truth, they're just massive hypocrites about the whole thing. I mean, to be worth £62 million, uh, to have both parents having gone to Oxford and to live in Berkshire and to start lecturing people about poverty is pathetic. Well, it is. I mean, there's nothing wrong with all of those things. There's nothing wrong with making £62 million. There's nothing wrong with living now with, in Sussex with a bloke who used to be called Ned Rock and Roll, apparently, uh, who's a nephew <laughs> of Sir Richard Branson. Uh, but when she starts to say things that I've tried to instill my parents' values into my kids, never people never believe me, but my children aren't overprivileged. Well, guess what? I don't believe you either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well that, that's right. But, of course, what happens with somebody like that they think that it is normal in life right across this country to shop at Waitrose, to get um, to get taxis everywhere, to be able to eat out yeah. three times a week and to go to private schools. And, of course, she will say, well, no, of course, just because we only spend £400 a week on food, you know, we're an average family. Of course, she's completely detached from reality. Yeah. But what she, what she tends to think is, she tends to think, or Hollywood stars tend to think, that corporations make money off the back of the workers Whereas her her rise has not been off the back of anyone. Well, guess what? All of those people paying 10, 15 quid to watch Titanic, that was a transfer of wealth from the poor to you, the rich. Yes. You know, you are no difference to anybody no. else. And, of course, she's also said that she doesn't like to discuss money. She finds discussions of money to be vulgar, which is no more bourgeois, I suppose, than you can get, really, because the one thing you know is that when you find discussions about money vulgar, you've obviously got too much of it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, people who discuss money a lot are people who, who really need it. <laughs> um, whereas, whereas, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't generally, stunt, uh, I don't generally uh, struggle for money. I'm, I'm a single guy and I've got a fairly decent job. Um, so, you know, I don't sit around the pub lamenting the fact that I need an extra 10 or 20 quid. And I understand that. I imagine she doesn't either. But, I mean, there are normal people in this, in this country and in yeah. this world who actually do talk about money because, guess what, they're worried about where the next meal's well, coming they, from. Also, they keep getting taxed more and more and they're wondering what on earth is happening. But, I mean, you can't also just ring up the Donmar warehouse and go, you know, how do you fancy me popping down for a 10-week stint of, you know, um, the, the, the uh, you know, the latest... 
play by Ibsen, which is what everybody wants to see, and, and, and away you go, you can pay me half a million quid, because that's the kind of money that she's able to command. It is quite remarkable that people like her and my other favourite one, of course, Emma Thompson, uh, who we haven't seen flying in from LA to tell us to stop flying uh, so far, but we may well do because the Extinction Rebellion crowd are back in the city because uh, private schools have broken up for the summer. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, Emma Thompson is particularly unbelievable. But, of course, the thing is, they don't see it as hypocritical because what they see is they go, ah, but I'm worth it. Other people are not worth it. You know, I need to fly first class between London and New York on a, on a weekly or monthly basis. But normal people don't have to do that. They can holiday in Blackpool. Well, you know, I think it's, it's the hypocrisy <laughs> of it. But, but, of course, they do not see themselves as giant hypocrites. They see themselves as people who deserve to be in a position of power, who deserve the wealth that they've got. They've never taken it off anybody else. And so you can be a genuine socialist when you're worth 60 £2 million. Pounds. Yes, of that course. That is, of course, nonsense. Isn't life grand, as they say? Well, Andre, thank you very much indeed. Take it easy. Andre Walker there, uh, reporting in from sunny Berkshire, uh, where, of course, Kate Winslet comes from. She also said, by the way, uh, that when she was growing up, her parents didn't have any money. They couldn't afford to fly anywhere on holiday. Is that now the definition of uh, being poor, not being able to actually fly anywhere on holiday? You know, I didn't fly anywhere on holiday either when I was a kid because we drove everywhere. We used to drive to Italy, you know, about four days in the back of a car uh, with tent pegs sticking into your uh, sidelines. I mean, it wasn't exactly the most comfortable or luxurious way to travel, but it was great fun. You don't need money to actually enjoy yourself. But having money does not mean you should be ashamed of it either. The idea that Kate Winslet is now telling us that she would have been disgusted if she, in fact, discovered uh, that she had any wealthy members of her family in her ancestry, is quite frankly pretty disgusting in and of itself. Uh, a couple of quick tweets to end up with. Simon talking about common sense, which is what you get, of course, on this radio station and on this particular show. Common sense is about as commonplace as the dodo in today's society, I'm afraid. Rick says, sadly, Mike, uh, I think common sense has disappeared. You don't even hear the phrase common sense anymore uh, and that is in the tiniest nutshell. What is wrong with the world? Well, I wouldn't say uh, that you don't hear it anymore because you do hear it completely and utterly on this particular radio show. Dougal says, it's a shame Miss Price didn't mention the ill effects of fruit juices made from concentrate. As was mentioned, though, it's all down to education or lack of it. And Mike says, what is the matter with the world today when people want the government to tell them everything? Has common sense gone out of the window? Well, that's unfortunately where we are because we now have a complete and utter society which has been created by those who would like us to do what they tell us, people who tell us how to behave, what to eat, how fast to drive your car, when you can fly on a plane, when you should be able to go to the doctor, when you're allowed to have antibiotics because we can't give you those in case you become addicted to them, when you can get a drink at a pub, what sorts of uh, food you can eat in a restaurant, when you can go to a fast food joint and order something which might be bad for you because it might have some fat in it, uh, which wouldn't be right. It's absolutely extraordinary. Sadly, we have come to the end of another show uh, and it's only Tuesday, but don't worry, we've got lots more to do. We've got Wednesday, we've got Thursday, we've got Friday. The Independent Republic will be back at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.